0: Chats from the Blog Cabin.
1: Your favorite podcast is here. Hey, y'all.
2: Welcome back to the set of chats in the blog cabin you know the show where i virtually invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life and today we're chatting about family dynamics family relationships family secrets and all about the book the wool over their eyes by dion martin and dion thank you so much for coming on the show and before we get into your book
0: tell us a little bit about yourself yeah sure thank you for having me i'm happy to be here um Well, as you stated, my name is Dionne Martin, and I am originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, born and raised. Um, I currently live in Dallas, Texas. We've lived here for, oh my gosh, at least 16, 17 years. Um, I have two daughters. Um, I will say, just kind of to go back a little bit, I grew up in New Orleans in a very conservative, uh, very Christian home. Uh, And so I read a lot as a child. It was pretty much the only thing I could do. Um, and I like to tell people that I do think um, just stories and books and novels in a sense, I, when I think back, I think saved my life. The ability for me to just read and dive into someone else's world, um, I think gave me an opportunity to escape from my own. And so I think we'll get probably a little bit more into some of the family dynamics stuff uh, later in the interview. But um, yeah, as I said, from New Orleans, now living in Dallas, um, my career is, is I work full time as a communications director uh, for Brinker International, they own Chili's and Maggiano's. Um, so I do work full time and, and I will say um, that certainly writing a novel was has been my lifelong dream. It has taken me years to do it, you know, working full time but I'm just excited that I accomplished this dream and excited to talk to you more about it. So let's talk about your dream of writing a novel because I think in the book, your mom is based
2: on your mom in real life because you were just talking about being home in a Chris being raised in a very christian background you can see that with your mom so let's talk about (laughs) the basis of your novel when the idea popped in your head to write this novel
0: yeah so you know when i went off to college i went to undergrad uh, at the university of minnesota in moores and then i went on um, to get my master's in journalism at ut in austin and so i knew early on just from high school and my college years that writing was my sort of God-given talent. It was the thing that I was naturally good at. So I knew I always wanted to write a novel just from the time that I was in college. Um, I wasn't quite sure what the no- what the novel would be about. So that kind of just came about as I started thinking about my life and just how different um, it is or was compared to other people's. Um, I found out when I was five years old that my biological dad, um, was not that my stepfather was not my biological dad and then i could also just see visually that i didn't look like anyone else in my family um so my mother sat me down and had a long conversation with me about my real father um so the story my novel is very loosely based on my real life i will say that i've definitely taken some creative liberties and let my imagination, you know, run wild in a lot of areas, um, but it is very loosely based on the fact that, um, you know, my real dad is is was Italian, my mom is black, and in this sort of biracial, um, you know, piece mm-hmm. of my life, and just how different um, what that meant for me growing up. So, what exactly did that mean for you growing up? Because obviously, that's the shock at
2: five-year-olds to find out that you're not you're. The, your biological, who you thought was your biological
0: dad, isn't your biological dad. That had to be a shock, first of all. It was definitely a shock. Um, And I think that it was the difficult thing for me growing up was that I always wanted to meet my dad and know who he was. It was always just this really strong desire that I always had. My stepdad didn't want me to meet him. Um, And so my mom, you know, went along. What complicates it, Melissa, is the fact that my real dad was married when I was conceived. So that's where it gets complicated, Um, and so my mother promised him that she wouldn't disrupt his family, his life, destroy his legacy, you know, or ruin his reputation with his family. So he was married, he had three kids, and to this day they don't know anything about me or that I exist. So growing up that way was definitely difficult. and I just think little girls, you always want to know who your dad mm-hmm. is and you crave that relationship. And I think, you know, it affected my relationships with men growing up and even, you know, my marriage um, to my girl's dad. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's definitely um, complicated and it's, it's difficult to kind of sort of dissect and think through. And, and there are definitely some things that I think I had to overcome as a result of it.
2: So let's talk about some of the things that you had to overcome because obviously not being able, knowing the secret that your mom kept and saying, we're not going to disrupt your life. So they don't even know about you. Yeah. That has to
0: be heartbreaking. It is. And it was, I think that ultimately it made me stronger as a person because you just, you you know, there's no one's going to sort of call you and comfort you and, and tell you, oh, it's okay. And. Because really it's not and it wasn't. So I had to figure out how do I overcome this on my own? How do I make myself strong despite, you know, the circumstances? Um, I think what made it difficult was that I was not close with my stepdad. We didn't have a close relationship and he didn't treat me like I was his daughter. Um, and that's a whole nother story. and I you know, I think he's since apologized and I, I think frankly that, they both, my mom and my stepdad feel bad about sort of how this all played out and how it affected me sort of being in the middle of this with these adults deciding Mm -hmm. what would happen to me (laughs) as a child. Um, And so I do sometimes wonder, well, what would I have turned out? Like how would things have been different had I had a relationship with my real dad? But ultimately I think it made me stronger. Um, I think the way that I grew up and the way that I was raised, my mother basically tried to be both a mom and a dad to me. Mm -hmm. And she really stressed and enforced this idea that her daughters, I have two sisters, um, different dads obviously, Mm -hmm. but that, you know, this whole idea that we needed to be independent and get our educations, because those were two things that she never, you know, was able to do. So I think from that perspective, it it was a positive for me because I grew up knowing that I would go to college and that I would always be able to provide for and support myself um, and not sort of be in the situation that my mom found herself in.
2: So what did you, your mom say when you wrote the book, you were telling her you're writing the book or your sisters or your stepdad as well, loosely based on your life. Cause that had to be like a, no, what are you going to say? Or scared about what you were going to say or anything
0: you would think that they would be a little bit more concerned or curious. Um, They're not readers. My mom, I mean, they, they read the Bible. Now they can, they can quote, you know, quote scriptures inside and out, but they don't read a lot outside of the Bible. So my mom is still reading the book. She's just started it. I think where they found some comfort or where they weren't as concerned was that they know that it's loosely based. Um, and so because I've taken some creative liberties and didn't make it completely biographical or autobiographical, um I I don't think they feel as concerned. And so when people read the book, even some of my friends and other family members have asked, well, what you know, what's true and what's made up? So I've had to do a lot of explaining as far as okay, well, this these parts are true are true, and these parts are, you know, figments of my imagination. Um so how about your husband and your daughters
2: were they like yes mom go yes honey go write this book get your get your story
0: out there were they super supportive and encouraging yes yeah, so I'm, I'm actually i am actually divorced from my girl's dad but i will say that you know throughout our marriage he was definitely supportive like he's known for years that i've always wanted to write this book at least one um and so he was very supportive during our marriage and even now i think that he's one of the people that's most proud of me For having done it. Um, I think my daughters are too. I think you probably saw, you know, at the very beginning, I dedicated, you know, my first book to them because I, you know, my girls, my daughters are definitely the loves of my life. Like I just, you know, you've got kids, you can't imagine your life without them. Um, So they were very supportive and I think extremely proud. I love that. Now, do you have your book with you? Because I know you're at work today. I do.
2: I do. Um, I remember to bring it. <laughs> so we're going to get to a brief commercial, but when we come back, I want you to read part of your book. Are you ready okay. for that?
0: Of course. Yes. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe. And don't, don't miss the next episode.
2: Here we go.
1: Do you feel betrayed by life? Your body? or by someone that you love. You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, And I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to see, know, and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others, no matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life Choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to nakedselfworth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past reclaim your sexy and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are
2: And we are back talking with Dion Martin about her book, The Wool Over Their Eyes. Now Dion, before we went to break, I asked you if you had your book with you and you do. So would you read a part of your book for us?
0: Sure. I will read the first uh, paragraph in the first chapter. Okay. Okay. At 18, Natalia knew seven things about her biological father, Joe. He was a tall, dark, handsome Italian. Although he was married when he met her mother, he wanted to leave his wife, that's what he'd said, and run off to be with his mistress in Mexico, where fresh air gave new life and the Caribbean waters washed away the heavy burden of guilt. Never mind his three children, never mind his wife, never mind his morals. Now, 10 years later, she would soon know eight. He was dying of cancer. Wow.
2: So I love the fact, do you think the reason why you wrote this book was because that way you could actually get resolution of your father. Like this was some way, shape and form a way to resolve meeting the father, because you already said in the, earlier that you never have
0: never met him. So, so I do think that writing the book was therapeutic in some ways and it actually opened my eyes and sort of made me think about some things that I hadn't thought about. So for example, his wife and what would she think about this whole, you know, affair and the, you know, this, me, the product of that affair. Um, and so I, the the book goes back and forth between Natalia, you know, the main character, and then the wife, Rosa, who has been betrayed. Um, and so it was interesting for me in a couple of ways. One was putting myself in her shoes and imagining how you know, she would feel knowing that her husband betrayed her. So that was hurtful and painful, mm-hmm. uh, but it was also hurtful and painful to think about, you, know, you wanna love your dad, you wanna admire him, you wanna look up to him, but it, it made me look at him differently because it's sort of like, well, how do you respect this person when they behave in this manner? And he did want to leave his wife. He did want to run off to be with my mom. And it's, it's just, it's painful to think about. Um, and yet you want to love this person and admire them and look up to them. But it's, it's difficult when you think about some of their you know behaviors and the actions and decisions that they've made in their life. Now in real life, I did meet my real dad once. Mm -hmm. So I was in college. My mom had a friend who ran into him. All of my life, they told me that he no longer even lived in New Orleans. So I had no way of like, how could I find him? His name is very common. Um, So the short version is that I I called him while I was in college in Minnesota and we arranged to meet when I was home for Christmas in New Orleans um, during a college break. And I met him. we had a great connection, great conversation. we had dinner um and it, and even that was painful because I just thought about like all the years that I missed out on mm-hmm. having him in my life but then six months later was when he died from cancer. so I went back to school and I found out he had terminal you know brain you know brain cancer you know and this was some years ago, and it was you know even now brain cancer is is very um mm-hmm. It's usually inoperable. Um, So six months later he died. And in the book, I will say that I made the character a lot stronger than I was in real life. I was very much a rule follower whatever my mom told me to do, I did. When he died, I wanted to go to his funeral and she didn't want me to go. She felt like if I went, his whole family would see me and they would know I was his child because she just felt like I looked so much like him. So in real life I met him once and he died six months later and I did not go to his funeral. So I, n- I still, I never had a relationship with him.
2: But you still were able to at least see him before he passed. So that yeah. way you at least got to meet him. Cause I can't even imagine yeah. always wondering and, and knowing, and I can't imagine the conversation that you had because I won't delve into that, but I can imagine it was really yeah. eye opening some ways, hurtful, some ways, sad, happy, a whole mix
0: of emotions. It definitely was. I was very emotional when I met him. And you're right, it was it was nice to just be able to see him because all my life I, I really did wonder what did he look like? What did his voice sound like? Did he even think about me and wonder how I was doing and what was going on in my life? Like, I can't imagine having a child personally and not being in that child's life and not wondering how they were doing, you know? So I, I definitely thought about that. So that these secrets that
2: you were, that were held onto, how did that affect you? Or are you more open with your girls now about things in their life or in your life that's going on?
0: I think so. I think so. Um, I think generally as a person I'm very open and direct and, and even at work, just, I'm just all about authenticity and being genuine. Um, because there's just no need for that and you need to be able to be your true self wherever you are, whether you're at work or at home, church, the grocery store. Like I, I, I do think that um, it's just made me think that I don't want to live in a shadow and sort of hide myself from people.
2: Because you feel like you've been hidden. Uh, this little therapy session. You feel like you've been hidden away because you were like this, I don't want to say dirty little secret, but like a dirty little secret almost. For um, your whole life, or like you didn't know your dad, you didn't. You were told you don't you no know, contact with him or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I and this was something I had to think about too. And I've had friends and you know family like ask me, you know, why don't you introduce yourself to the wife and his three kids because they're all still alive. They still live in New or outside of New Orleans, and I never have done that and. I think part of me just, I don't know what good that would do Mm -hmm. if I did. It's almost
2: like you don't want to hurt them because, you know, it's going to bring a lot of hurt. And especially now he can't defend himself as well, even though, you know, what's going on in his head. And I can just imagine the kids are probably thinking, oh, she wants inheritance or she wants this or that because after someone's passed, but what do you tell your girls about that, this experience about, you know, growing up and the way you, had that family secret meal to you at five?
0: I think for my girls, what it did for me and the conversations that I had with them was that I was, I think, more vigilant about them having a relationship with their dad. So no matter what happened with him, between the two of us, I always wanted them to be close to him. And they are, they have a great relationship. And even when we divorced, it's been 10 years, I was very adamant about them staying close, them spending time with him, him being actively involved in their lives. I was not ever going to be you know, one of those women who kept their kids from the dad because they're bitter or angry because of what was done to them you know, by, this, mm-hmm. by the father of their kids. So for me, it was very much about them continuing to be close to their dad because it's just, I just think it's critical. I think little girls need their dads. I can't be both to them. To them, mm-hmm. Like I know that I can't be both to them. I don't wanna be both to them. And he and I have conversations to this day where it's like, this is, this is your role, this is on you. This is my role, this is on me. And we, we definitely always wanna make sure we're on the same page, even though we're not together. Because for me, it was always about doing what was best for my daughters, no matter what, how I felt mm-hmm. about the situation.
2: I love that. You're like basically learning what you learned in childhood and and applying it so that the cycle doesn't continue. Right. Right. So why did you decide, you said you've always wanted to write a book. Was that just something from childhood when you were reading that you're like, oh, I want to write one of these books that some people are going to read one day. Was that your whole thing or was it just something that always has been on your mind?
0: I think... The turning point for me when it came to books and novels and just stories was when I was in seventh grade. I read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I mean, she's she was certainly my favorite author of all time. Um, the Bluest Eye just stuck with me. Um, like I remember closing the book and I couldn't escape. Pecola is the main character, and it's really a it's a sad story. It's about a, a little black girl who. Praise for blue eyes because she thinks that it will make her beautiful. So, wow, so I think, yeah, just the power of a story and like how that made me feel when I read it was like, wow, like I wanna do this one day. Um, and there were other books, like, and then as I said, just I read so much, like if you name the book, I probably had read it, um, especially, you know, junior high and high school. Um, a wrinkle in time, the same thing. Just the whole idea of just being to, you know, able to escape. Um, I felt a little bit trapped as a teenager because I couldn't, I didn't have a lot of freedom. I couldn't go places like a lot of my friends did. I had a very early curfew. If something was considered secular, I couldn't do it. We couldn't listen to certain music. Um, we couldn't wear nail polish. I mean, it was very it was very conservative. Um, And so for me, reading was it it was almost a form of freedom for me to be able to sort of escape the world that I was in and enter these other worlds. So the more I read, the more I thought, I want to be able to influence someone's life in this way where they can escape and read this story and learn something from it and take that away with them, you know, sort of tuck it and keep it for themselves. When I was in college, I think that's when I realized that I had a talent for writing. And so I would be in my English classes and the professors would, my work would be the work that they would read. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I am good at this. And I think, you know, I I was good at it because I read so much. Um, So I think college was when I first was, you know had this idea that I definitely want to write a book one day. And a couple of my professors, you know, agreed. They're like, you should definitely do this. You should pursue it. And so I think as I got older, I had shared this dream with some people. But as I got older and I worked more and more, I got further and further away from my dream. And then I finally got to a point when I turned 40, and I was like, OK, no, <laughs> you can't keep talking about this book and you're not like finishing it. Like I would work on it on weekends, like here and there. Um, but the older I got, the, realize, the more I realized I needed to just do it, get it done, accomplish it and I didn't want to look back and have regrets so that was really sort of my motivation um, and just sort of lit a fire beneath me and I just I got a schedule together and I just really committed to it and, and made it happen yeah
2: because I I can imagine working a full-time job and trying to write plus trying to be a parent all yeah. at the same time that's got to be time consuming so how did you find how did you find time to write
0: it was difficult I I My girls would do um, pretty much every other weekend at their dads and stepmoms. And so I would write on the weekends. I would much rather have been like watching Netflix or hanging out or doing something else. But I devoted my weekends um, to writing. Um, Every now and then I would take time off from work and I would use that time to write. And I would sometimes carve out morning, like like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. slots. And so I literally just put together a schedule and force myself to do it wow yeah and you also are working are you working on another book as well i started on my second book actually yes but i'm still thinking through kind of where i want to take it um i have an idea of what i want it to be about but i haven't really formalized what that could be just yet i have a rough outline and a couple of chapters (laughs) so
2: once you got this book written how did you get it published what stages did you go through because i know a lot of people Mm don't know
0: how do i get my book published Yeah. No, that's a great question. I, so I did work with a developmental editor. um, Once I finished the first draft, John Payne, and he was immensely helpful in having me flesh out more chapters, move some things around, further develop one of the characters. um, Because you think, oh, I've read so many books. I know how to write a book, but you don't. It's, (laughs) you sit down and it's just like, very unwieldy. And it's like, it's huge. It's a lot to manage. And when you take breaks in between, you kind of forget where you left off here or there. And um, so he was definitely helpful in, in getting the chapters in the final product where, where it ended up. Um, it, it wouldn't have turned out the way it did without his input and some of his guidance. Um, he wanted me to pursue an agent. And so I did, I spent at least eight months looking for an agent and that in and of itself is super time consuming. So first you've got to do the research to see, well, which one is, you know, which one is looking for a book in my genre, first of all. So that narrows it down. Um, so I had this list of all these agents and you pitched them basically your story. And three of them, and this is probably out of, I don't know, 60, 50 or 60. Well, some of them you won't hear back from at all. So you can You know, 25% of them you might not even hear back from at all. Mm -hmm. But a couple of them wanted to read the full uh, manuscript. So that was promising, but then ultimately they declined and said, oh, it's not quite what I'm looking for right now. And one of them gave me feedback, which was helpful, and I incorporated it. Um, So finally, I just decided I'm just gonna self-publish because I can't let these agents be the reason I don't have my story out there. So I ended up uh, going with a publishing company um, and paying out of pocket to have them help me get it published. Wow. Yeah. I will yeah. say
2: this is, it's a wonderfully written book and I love the dynamics. I love yeah. how you switch Thank back you. and forth, but you talk about new Orleans and you grew up in Louisiana. There's like parts where like there's spirits that come up. So let's talk <laughs> about that. Cause I noticed that a lot.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, so and New Orleans is I think a little bit known for like voodoo and just some of the kind of you right spirits and kind of creepy like is this real is it not and I've actually had conversations with people about this where and, you know and you've seen those shows like paranormal uh, activity and that sort of thing. I've had conversations with people about it and some people really believe in it and they've had these like weird stories that sort of proof and so I will say that I have had a couple of experiences myself nothing like weird or you know crazy but um where I have had like this sense that either there's so almost like an angel sort of watching over me or like a presence and my mom has had some similar experiences and then I have also had I guess you can call it almost a vision. My young, my oldest daughter was born very prematurely. I was 27 weeks and she was 2.2 pounds when she was born. And I was a nervous wreck because we didn't know if she was going to be healthy, if she was going to live. It was very scary. Um, delivering her at that early stage of the pregnancy. I went into labor. She was born and before she was born i had sort of this dream or this vision and i saw her before she was born and it was exactly the way she looked when she was born but she sort of had these angels wings if that makes sense and she was just kind of like floating but something was like holding her up and from that dream or that vision i knew that she was going to be okay like it just something came over me and i don't know if it was because i was praying and, and of course, asking God to save our child. But in that moment, I knew that she was going to be okay. And my mom has had similar things happen. So I'm interested in that dynamic and what it really means. Um, I don't doubt that there are some other presences around us, so to speak. Um, A lot of some of the books that I've read, For example, even Toni Morrison's work. And then there's another author, Cynthia Bond. She wrote this book called Ruby, where it has these elements kind of woven into it. And I just am intrigued by it. So I wanted to explore it a little bit. I didn't want to go too far with it, but I did want to explore it a little bit.
2: And I love that. I love the way you explored it in the book. I'm not going to give it away to people that want (laughs) to read the book, but I love the way you explore it. And I love, you just talked about you live in Texas and you. Went back to New Orleans, and so I love that that little bit of personal stuff in it, mm-hmm. um, and the dynamics of the relationships in the books, not only between the relationship between the mom and the daughter, but the the daughter and the, the two boyfriends, one boyfriend that comes back into life, and then the other boyfriend that you know the <laughs> current and pre, you know, present and the past boyfriends coming together, and she has to make that choice. It's almost like she's choosing making a decision that her mom couldn't choose later, earlier on, almost like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So why did you decide to include like a little sidebar relationship, like everything else that Natasha was going through, you know, finding out about her dad and, and then finding out that her dad is dying. And then all of a sudden she's stuck between these two men as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to just have a little bit of romance in the novel. I mean, she's young, she's in her late twenties and, you know, you almost sort of expect this main character to have something, some sort of love interest or something going on outside of her career and her regular life. Um, and then I also thought back to when I was in my early mid-20s and what was going on in my life and who was I dating and all of that. And so I definitely wanted an element of romance in the novel. Um, and so some of my friends have asked, well, who's the doctor based on and who's the ex based on? <laughs> so that has been some some funny conversations. I will say that the doctor is completely made up. I don't know anybody like Dr. Duplessis. (laughs) (laughs) He's almost too good to be true. Almost. I'm like, yeah,
2: how in the world did this happen? It was like, he just just slid in and I'm like,
0: what? Yeah. (laughs) Because he has to have some kind of flaw somewhere, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he did. He does. But yes. Yeah, we all do. And that's also, I'm glad you brought that up. That's also a part of it. There are no, you know, perfect people and we we are all flawed. And I, I wanted, um, I wanted to show that as well.
2: Now in the book, Natasha has a, a really good friend that stands by her. Did you have a good friend standing by you through all this as well, that she's kind of based on?
0: I would say so the best friend, Natalia's best friend Pamela is is probably a combination of a couple of my closest friends. Yeah, and I she definitely needed a best friend and sort of a confidant and someone to be supportive and help bring her along and and in a sense give her some strength that she was sort of faltering here and there on. Um, but I would say that the best friend, her best friend, is is a combination of a couple of my friends. And do they did did they read the book
2: and say, oh, that's that that part is me, or that oh that's so you, or do they know each other?
0: All the friends know each other. Oh, oh. <laughs> so one of my best friends here thought it was another friend of mine who lives in Maryland. Um, and then another one of my friends just thought she was completely made up. So I think her character is so different that she's just not clearly one of them. So I don't think any of them really thought that it was them specifically, if that makes sense.
2: Now you just talked about, we just talked about having that friend that's supportive, how important was that in your life, especially when you're, finding out, well, you were five when you found out, but going to meet your dad, did you talk to everyone with friends about meeting your dad as well?
0: I did, I talked with a couple of my friends when I was in Minnesota in, in college at the time. Um, and it was weird because it was something that I really kept secret from my friends even. Like growing up in New Orleans and in high school and junior high, I never told people who my real dad was and all of the dynamics of my family. I kept it secret from my friends too, because part of me, I think felt like, well, if he's not gonna acknowledge me, then why should I acknowledge him? And then the other part of me was just sort of, um, I won't say that I was denying sort of this other half of me, but because I didn't grow up with him, I really didn't identify with with him or that whole side. And so I always only have identified as black So it just wasn't something that I acknowledged for a long time. I just think I just kind of tucked it in a corner and didn't talk about it with anybody. But once I had the opportunity to meet him, I did share it with a couple of my friends in college and they were all very surprised. Wow. You would know, they wouldn't ever guess, you know. So what does that
2: mean to you being biracial though?
0: I think that you know physically it's something that you can see especially you know yes I have lighter skin or my hair is a certain texture but honestly because of how I grew up in New Orleans New Orleans is mostly black my family is black my siblings my mom my stepdad the schools I went to were predominantly black the church we went to it was it wasn't something I ever really thought about um In the sense of how i identified i Mm -hmm. should say i do think growing up that i thought about it because my stepdad made it an issue because Mm -hmm. i was lighter than everyone else um but in terms of how i identified i didn't think of it in the sense of oh i'm mixed and what does that mean and oh i should you know well this white side of me is this but i didn't grow up with it so i frankly could never identify with it the reason why I'm
2: asking, because if you saw my opening, my girls are biracial. They're Mexican-American. They're, my mm-hmm. husband's a native of Mexico. So, mm-hmm. you know, trying to identify, I, I guess that was kind of a blessing in disguise for you because you didn't have, you're not white enough for your white friends and you're not black mm-hmm. enough for your black friends. Or for in their case, they weren't white enough for their white friends and they weren't Hispanic enough for their Hispanic friends. Yeah. So maybe that was a blessing in disguise there for you.
0: I think so probably for me and I think in New Orleans because just (laughs) with the history of the city and, you know, there's a lot of Creole people and, you know, there's there are a lot of mixed. I won't even say mixed. There are just there are a lot of lighter skinned black people in New Orleans. And so you don't necessarily feel feel odd walking around like, oh, wait, you know what I mean? Because so many people, they may not have a white parent and a black parent, Mm -hmm. but the bloodlines are very mixed. Mm So there's, you know, who's who's 100% anything though is what I've asked so many people. You know, like my daughter recently did Ancestry.com because we were sort of like, um, what do we have in our family? Because their dad is mixed. So his mom is white, his oh. dad was black. And so our girls are, you know, they get asked all the time if they're mixed and they're like, well, technically no, <laughs> because <laughs> both of our parents are black. But then if you start looking at, your lineage, you I mean, we've got, we've got Africa, we've got Europe. We, I mean, it's just, it's just all over the place.
2: Yeah. And I mean, at one point you have to look past the color and just look at the person, you know, of course you obviously see how beautiful, yeah. like you're a beautiful black woman, but you know, you have to look past that and look at the personality, the characteristics and everything else that makes the
0: person who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. We just read this book. Um, we've got like a communities of interest um, uh, group at uh, where I work and we read these books from time to time and we have these discussions um, and one of them, is called Between the World and Me by Tenehesi Coates. And in that book, he talks a lot about race. And I wish I had the book with me because I'll never do it justice in terms of how he writes about it, but essentially when he talks about race, it's it's just something that we have decided to sort of make up. You know, it's, it's he talks about it in terms of like, you know, the people that they call black and the people that we call white, when we're all just people. Mm-hmm. But we put these labels on ourselves and that's what they are, they're labels.
2: I love that. Now our time is almost up. Do you have one last little nugget that you want to share with people?
0: Uh, I think... I think my last nugget would just be that if anyone has a dream that they are looking to pursue, to just not be afraid to go after it, no matter how old you are. I think that we have a tendency when we are younger in life to take more risk and be dreamers and have loftier thoughts, and I think as we get older, we have less and less of that, unfortunately. Um, and I just think for anyone who's, who's older and thinking about a dream or has a dream that they haven't fulfilled or pursued, to just not be afraid to go after it. And I always think about this poem, uh, Langston Hughes, it's called, um, A Dream Deferred, mm-hmm. or Harlem. The poem is called Harlem, but you, you're probably familiar with it. What happens to a dream deferred? Does mm-hmm. it drive like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? That, if you just read that a couple of times, I think that'll give you some of the motivation you might be missing. If you've got something that you've just, it's been nagging at you, but you just haven't, you know, put the discipline in place to, to do it. So true. Now, tell people where they can find you at. Sure. So I do have a website and it's my first name, D I O N E dash martin.com. And so yeah, I've got info about my book on there. It's available on amazon.com. It's called the wool over their eyes. Uh, and I've got all of the social channels. I won't go through all of that. I'm not super active on social. I know you are, we talked about it earlier, but <laughs> my girls tell me I need to be better about being more active on social media. Um, but I am on all of the social media platforms as well.
2: And Dion, I want to thank you so much. First of all, for taking your dream and writing this book, because I literally read it. Like I also got the Kindle, it's free on Kindle unlimited. So they have a Kindle unlimited subscription they can get it. And if they don't have time to read it, Kindle unlimited has this great thing where with Kindle, you use a Kindle, it reads it to you. So mm-hmm. I love that. Cause you can be washing dishes and still reading the book or riding in your car and still reading the book. So I love mm-hmm.
0: that. No, that's cool.
2: <laughs> and I cannot wait for your second book. Any idea when
0: you, when
2: you'll have that one? Yeah. out?
0: Oh, Melissa. Well, this one took years. This one took almost six years. So I would say it would be some years. It'll be a couple of years. Well, when it
2: does come out, you are more than welcome to come back and talk about that book. Cause I would love to read what the, the, your next book is about. And thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us during this time.
0: No, thank you for having me.
2: It was fun. So, guys, I will put all the show notes, everything that she talked about, all the books as I took notes as she was writing, as she was talking, that she mentioned, in the show notes as well, where you can grab them and where you can get her book at, as well as all the places where you can get in touch with her. Um, Thank you for watching. As always, be blessed. And remember, keep chatting. Chats from the
1: Blog Cabin.
0: Enjoying this this episode? Leave a review now.